Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Ryder. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, currently working for the amazing organisation that is Park Run, previously charities lead at London Marathon Events and proud of my time as a fundraiser at Alzheimer's Research UK. Father of three football obsessed children, average golfer and previously 2017 rising star in the Next Generation of Fundraisers Awards. Beat that James. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Yeah. You're okay. listening to the Do More Good podcast. This meeting is being recorded. Right, here we are, James, back again for the Do More Good podcast. We're episode 102. How are you doing? I am very well, Kenneth, very well. It's been a little while since I've seen your little pixelated face on my screen, but it looks um, it's looking quite fresh. It is. It is. It's uh, the lighting in this room probably d- does me well, actually. It's one of them glow lamps that I've got that's behind, behind the screen here. But it's no, James, ring. yes, it's a milestone for me today. Mm. A big milestone. 100 days without alcohol and I've I've done it I've managed to do 100 days and I don't think I'm stopping now well I was going to say is that was that the aim is that the kind of finish line that you were looking for no not really I just yeah I just I just felt like one day like I was fancied kind of making a change and seeing what it was like to not 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 drink alcohol anymore and uh, that was 100 days ago and I never set out with a target it's been one day at a time um, and I don't know if we'll lose anything from the Do More Good podcast without being fueled. <laughs> Not that we uh, that we have, but you know, some of our previous episodes, probably including our hundred one, there was definitely elements of uh, being lub- lubrication in there. But no, I'm enjoying it, feeling fresher, lost lost some weight, a bit more time to focus on some other kind of hobbies and objectives, and yeah, I'm feeling good for it, feeling yeah. good. So long, long may it go on. I must admit, I have got a stag do in the calendar. Right, it's quite a later in life stag do perhaps, but um, and I'm 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 younger in life. I could have handled the Saturday morning. Now I'm just dreading the Saturday. I'm not dreading the um, the, you know, drinking a beer through a sock, which I would have done previously. Now I'm dreading the waking up on the Saturday. Can I can I actually function? Yeah. God, the hangovers these days. It's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But. It is a bit so much worse. It is a bit of a cliche. I went out with a few guys uh, a few weeks ago, and um, we normally do a bit of a boozy bike ride. Actually, it was it was over Christmas actually, and take a few beers and go to a few pubs and you know enjoy ourselves. And as we got to the third pub, I was pretty sick of non-alcoholic beer. So I had a cup of tea and they presented to me at like 10 o'clock on a Saturday evening in a pub, you know, a lovely uh, mug of tea. And I sat there and you can imagine the the laughs and the jokes were all in my direction. But yeah, yeah I was the one laughing and joking when I woke up the next day with a, with a clear head. But um, yeah. look, yeah, other than the boost free stuff, how's work going? I mean, you're in a you're in a corporate office. You've been in the office today. It's oh, not I've like you. In- I know, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a big move, really, to kind of come back into the office. I, I, it, uh, I don't know when it began. It wasn't a New Year's resolution, but I'm trying to be in a couple of days a week, which I've not done for a while. And um, as I was just telling you before we started, I've done an all-day evaluation on uh, a couple of our previous products. So uh, lots of chatting, actually, which, which is a nice warm-up. It's like a nice nine-hour warm-up to today. <laughs> but yeah, no, good. Good to be back in. I love being seeing everyone. Like, the commute is a bit of a pain. I don't have any beers on the bike as you might do. Um, but when you get here, it's, uh, yeah, it's nice to see people. So, yeah, good. Yeah, all good. All good. Good, good, good stuff. Well, look, let's let's crack on with this episode, because I think we were just saying before we hit record, like we've been really keen to speak to, to this gentleman and he's... Um, Someone I think that a lot, hopefully people will, will, will have seen around. I think his Twitter profile is brilliant. I love the way that he talks about the sector and his work. So, yeah, really keen to to get on and, and, and speak to him. So I'll crack on with the intro. So like several of the fundraising experts we've had on the show previously, our guest this week started his career in face-to-face fundraising, going on to be a head and director of fundraising at charities, including Livability, Prisoners Abroad, Amnesty International and Refugee Action. 
He then moved on to a fundraising agency that focused on authenticity, engagement and shared values rather than a traditional agency hierarchy and structure. Um, then he went on to found his own consultancy, Humanity Squared, in, in 2020. Now, as the founder of Humanity Squared, he, his focus now is on innovation, on transformation and human-centered strategy with the aim of connecting people to causes they believe in and mobilizing them to drive positive change. He also continues to share his experience to lift others, being a trustee of several charities and a leadership mentor. And his focus on humans, not hierarchy, is unique and understated. And if you follow him on Twitter, as I say, you'll see his authentic, positive message about being a good human is at the forefront of his values. He's an aspiring human and father, lives just outside of Brighton, and a host of the podcast Charity Island Discs that shares the stories of the charity folk through their musical interests. And we'll come on to that hopefully later. But for now, we're really pleased to welcome Wayne Murray to the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing, Wayne? Oh, blimey. What an intro. Who's that guy? I like the sound of <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that? That's really, oh, I'm welling up. That's really, really lovely. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, pl- plagiarised is probably the phrase. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, Wayne, it's really, as I say, it's really good to to get to meet you and get to spend some time and, and understand a little bit more about your your background. I think we've had a few previous guests that obviously I think you know quite, quite well in terms of kind of Nikki and Simon from Fundraising Everywhere. Claire Warner, which you refer to as your um, sector wife, is that right? My work wife, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, one of the best eggs in the sector, that one. Yeah, absolutely. So... Look, Wayne, we'd always like to go back to the start with our guests. And I think it's always interesting hearing about what led them to being the person they are today and, and, and choosing to have a career in the in the kind of the not-for-profit charity sector. So our first question is really, what do we need to know about you, where you came <laughs> from, how you were raised, to, to, to understand the man you are today? The man I am today. No, that's a, a, a lovely question to start with. And I think... Normally, when I'm wheeled out my coffin onto podcasts, it, it normally starts with that. I stumbled into the charity sector in, in blah, blah, blah. But I thought what I would do today is talk a bit, which I haven't done publicly, actually, about, um, you know, childhood and what kind of led me um, into the direction of travel that I'm in now. Because I think the more that I work in the field of values, the more I realise that whilst your values change and develop over time, and, and so they should, as you learn more and experience more, they're really forged when you're when you're young. So, you know, it's a really interesting point to, to start at. And there's a there's a quote from, you know, the actor Brian Cox, not the sciencey, physicsy guy, the, the the actor. And he said, he said once, always carry a picture in your wallet of you when you were seven because that's who you really are and the older I get the more I reflect on that and sort of think yeah he's 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 absolutely right so I'll I'll take you on a little trip of my 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 life uh, and being a human um in terms of trigger warnings there there are a couple of kind of heavy bits in there but it's it's heavy but human um and you know it's about the foundations of of who you are so to know about me, you kind of need to know about my mum and dad. Uh, mum and dad um, come from Galway in, in Ireland. They grew up in the same village, um, you know, but a, a poor working class rural community. They fell in love. Um, the only issue is that my mum was already married and she had four kids. She was 10 years older than, than my father, um, you know, very staunch Catholic background. Um, so they decided to elope and they ran away to, to England, took the four kids uh, and, and, and ran away. Um, my father um, was a labourer, um, so, you know, not a lot of money floating around. And then they, they, had, they had me. My mum, you know, stayed at home, managed, managed the house. Then when I, was, when I was four, my mother sadly passed away, cervical cancer. And all of a sudden my father was left at the age of... 32 as a labourer with five children so it was a very kind of interesting background um, we were really poor not just sort of free school meal poor but kind of that might be the only meal that I had poor electricity off quite a lot of the time hide and put on the sofa when anyone knocked at the door you know that sort of bit of background to my life um, 
dad, uh, you know, tried to do his best. Um, he had lots of relationships. I think he was trying to forge a kind of new family, so moved around quite a lot. It was quite chaotic at home. But interestingly, when I reflect back on it, um, primary school really saved me. You know, primary school had the routine, it had the structure, um, it had everything that I need to kind of function and grow and develop, whilst home life was extraordinarily chaotic. So those two things sort of balance themselves out a bit. Um, we moved to Essex. Um, I'm from, I grew up in South End, longest period in the world. Uh, that's about all it's got going for it. Um, and what, weirdly in Essex, and I think still to this day, they have the um, 11 plus. Um, so for, for some unknown reason, I managed to pass the 11 plus and I've got into a grammar school, you know, the first child in the family ever to do that, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, it did well, but the, the backdrop to grammar school really, I was a poor working class kid. And uh, I think uh, at junior school, I, I, all the kids, no one really knew, do you know what I mean? But at senior school, it became very apparent. And it was my first kind of experience of not just being poor, but feeling poor and feeling powerless and feeling other people's privilege and I use that word privilege against the backdrop of kind of understanding my own privilege you know I'm a white man sitting here talking to you but you know privilege man manifests itself in, in in many ways and but it kind of felt unfair that's the the feeling that I got in sort of senior school there were kids going to school with briefcases rather than rucksacks do you know what I mean and no matter how hard you try to fit into that sort of environment, people can smell it. You know, it's there in the cut of your trousers. It's there in the conversations about what happened at the weekend. You know, people with boats and second houses and all of this sort of stuff going into the mix. So the, the only the way that, not, not even how I could compete, but the only way I could kind of be myself was to, was to kind of study hard, you know, and that's what I did. And I had a very pushy dad who was kind of vicariously living his life through through me and I worked really hard and I did really well at GCSEs. Is is that how you you felt at the time was that giving you a, an escape from whatever else was going on around you in terms of the, the people that you could see in the privilege and that's why you, you you kind of focused in on that or was there other factors involved? That's such a good question and I think I think I think in retrospect I acknowledge that. I think at the time, you know, you're just floundering, you're just getting on with it. You know, it's just yeah. what you did. It's quite impulsive, and and subconscious. Um, but yeah, you know, got to GCSEs, did all right, but then basically turned around and said, "I am done. I'm done with this. I'm done with you know this mainstream education, this pushing, you know, all of this stuff. I'm going to art school." because uh, that's what I wanted to do. That was my passion. Um, that was my love. That was that and skateboarding were the two things that kind of kept me going outside of school. But this was also at the time when I was sort of 16. Um, you know, you're pushing against your parents. Things were, you know, volatile in a slightly different way at home. Um, and I got kicked out when I was 16. So for things sort of went into free fall a bit there so I was actually street homeless for a while um I sofa served for a while um all of that sort of stuff lent on the the kindness of my friends or more, more importantly my friend's parents uh, who were kind of you know helping out a lot there but for, you know gradually got back into sort of some semblance of normality that's it and got into house shares got more onto a sort of even keel uh, and got myself to, to university. So went to Wolverhampton, big up Wolverhampton Massive, um, did a degree in sculpture uh, and an MA in sculpture as well. So I spent four years in a foundry, which was brilliant. And it was kind of interesting because by the time I got to university, I'd been living on my own for three years. So, you know, I was sort of the grown up out of the mix. Uh, but the, the, the things that I found very difficult was money and finances. I've been on income support. So I used to go and cash my little book in at the post office every week for my 33 quid. And then all of a sudden the doors were open to me. It's back in the days of like full, you know, full grant, full student loan, overdrafts with every bank that, you know, you could <laughs> so you can imagine things that that's kind of what I had to deal with. Um, but I, you know, I, I left university, um, I came out um, after four years. I'd never used a computer 
Um, there, there used to be a, a retired woman uh, who lived next door to me who actually typed my dissertation for me. And I remember going to a temp agency after getting my MA and, and sort of going, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready for my big break now. And then saying, what's your typing speed? Me saying, I'd, I'd never used a computer. And I genuinely remember this woman getting a big blue folder down that said factory on it and be thinking, okay, this is it. This is this. This is what happens now. So it took a, a, about eighteen months, a couple of years, doing very strange jobs. Um, so I was a picture framer for a while. I managed shoe shops for a while, and then, and this is where the story normally starts. Then I stumbled into into charity work. So, as you said in the the intro, my my entry point was fundraising. And my my entry point was face to face and and telephone. And this was. Um, what is now known as like the first tranche of face-to-face -face in the UK. It's when Greenpeace first brought it over from, from the Netherlands. And the landscape was incredibly different now. We were, we were really laying the track in front of the train just in terms of like, how does this work? How does this work at scale? You know, how does how do the, the you know the sites work? You know, before all of that PFRA stuff and and whatever, you know. There were times when when we first started it was like stilt walkers and fire eaters and you know people queuing up 18 deep with their debit cards in their hand you know and, you know all of that got stripped away eventually but it was genuinely magic you know i have friends from that time now that are still you know beautiful humans that are still in my life more so than any other charity job that i've ever had and i, I think part of that might be due to the age that i was at the time i was sort of 24 25. So I was on the on the the street or on the phone for about eighteen months. Then I sort of worked my way up through the agency, sort of client services side, um, you know, managing accounts and all that sort of stuff. But I, first time in my career, I could see a career ahead of me. You know, before I was just I was a carrier bag in the wind. I was just going from hither hither and yon. So, and I desperately wanted to work for a charity, but I was very aware of this kind of direct dialogue cul-de-sac that you, you, you're sort of in and it was very difficult then and I'm sure it is now to make that jump from direct dialogue to you know mainstream individual giving as it were or, or to work directly for a charity and I think I reflect on that a lot and I think that's I think that's a real shame because it was the most diverse community of people that I'd ever worked with and you know when I've managed like at Amnesty when I managed you know an enormous um countrywide in-house face-to-face team the diversity there is incredible but it doesn't translate and uh, there's there's another whole podcast about that that we, that we can have but I managed to blag my first um head of individual giving job which was at John Grimm's who subsequently became livability so very quickly backfilled all of the stuff that I needed to know about Word and Excel and you know like it was a nice established program as well I think it was about 80,000 supporters so you know you get involved in segmentation different asks agency support all of that sort of stuff and it was great but interestingly I'd never met I never met a disabled person there um, and part of that is my fault because you need to push yourself out to to, to to meet people but part of that is about the about how organizations were back then and, and where lived experience was and how it kind of fed through organizations rather than just being about service delivery so I was very aware not, not that I had any career plan or whatever but you know I wanted to I wanted to be around service users for my next job so took the job from from understanding all of individual giving to make the leap to my first director role, which was at Prisons Abroad, which is universally regarded as one of the trickiest charities to raise to raise money for, but they're they're amazing and a real test of like what your absolute beliefs in human rights are, because not only did they support people overseas, um, they all and and families who were still in the UK, but importantly they helped with the resettlement of um, ex-offenders once they come back to the country. So you're constantly opening the door in January to someone who had just come back from Heathrow, uh, from Thailand, in sandals, in the snow, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Everyone sitting around eating together at lunchtime. So just, I could speak with absolute confidence about the organization because I was completely entrenched in that sort of lived experience. So, 
so yeah after that I went back agency side that's been a sort of theme throughout my career flip-flopping between charity and agency so went to an agency that was just starting its sort of digital journey as well as telephone fundraising and and helped to you know grow that to a point um that it was you know one of the big players in the UK sector then I hopped back agents uh, charity side again as head of individual giving for Amnesty that was a, a database that had been in decline for five or six years so managed to kind of get that back onto a different path uh it's really really enjoyable but really unwieldy is what i found and that's not just amnesty and the the politics and whatnot you know an organization of that size to to drive innovation is really hard you know even though it's part of the bedrock of my my work now but but back then <laughs> very difficult um but what i really liked about particular aspects of amnesty's work was was refugee work um so I took the leap to go to a smaller organization called Refuge Action, who are incredible. And it was just at the tipping point of the debate around refugees when, I don't know if you remember that, that awful picture of the drowned child, Alan Kurdi, um, was all over the place. Yeah. It was that horrible Daily Mail rhetoric about swarms of people and all of that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the drive from Refuge Action at the time was very much about support was coming its way and it's about how do we mobilize that support how do we how do we, how do we get campaigning into the mix as well how do we really turn from being purely a service delivery organization to a campaigning organization i also had the best boss of my life there stephen hale who was the chief exec of refugee action at the time he just started two months um before me and when, when he joined, Refuge Action was a sort of 27 million pound turnover charity, but about 24 million of that was from one grant from for the Home Office to get <laughs> failed asylum seekers out of the country as quickly as possible. Wow. Right? That's, right. you know, they were really up for funding that. Yeah. And I think it was week two with Stephen, like that grant got cancelled. So it's like, what is the future of this organisation? And everyone in the organisation was really panicking, but Stephen just saw it as an incredible opportunity. It was the way that he pitched it to everyone is like, we're not reliant on the Home Office anymore. Now mm -hmm. we can hold everybody to account. Now we're going to be people powered. We're going to be mobilization driven. And all of that just went right, right to my core. Um, so after that, then during this process outside of work, uh, me and my wife adopted our son who came to live with us uh, when he was four, um, who's just the best thing ever. But commuting to London from Brighton during that time was quite tricky. So I took an agency um, role nearer to home. Um, it was an agency called Audience. They were focused very much on creative delivery um, for you know direct mail and and digital. And I set up the sort of strategy function there. And as I started to work on strategy, what you just Gather, and I'm sure you do as well, is that every fundraising problem you have or every engagement problem you have is actually an organizational problem. So if you're not focusing at things from an organizational level, all this stuff isn't going to work. So that's that's when the cog started to really turn about kind of much more human-centered design and, and how things could be done differently. So uh, during, during the first lockdown, I quit, I quit my job. Um, my wife had been telling me for years, like, you know what these agencies sub you out on on your day rate and that that isn't your day rate you must do this for yourself so I handed my notes in and walked downstairs she was working in the kitchen and just said I've, I've handed my notes in and she was like what have you done what have you done <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it during a pandemic um but um I set up I set up during lockdown humanity squares and basically Things, things have really grown over the last two and a half years. Um, what I focus on, which we can talk about a bit more if you want, is organisational design and strategy that's kind of driven by people and culture, which is all about human-centred design. And I've got a two-point business plan. You know, my two-point business plan is that I want to do the very best work that I can. You know, I'm 40, 47, pushing 48. And point number two is that I don't want to work with ourselves. What are you doing on this podcast? 
Yeah, you want the French irregular verb, you know, you're the exception to the rule. The, the way that I work comes to life when I talk about my pricing plans, I have a three-tiered pricing plan. So the big ticket stuff that I do for, you know, big charities enables me to drastically subsidize my day rate to work with small to medium-sized charities, which then in turn enables me to do free work for small grassroots organizations so that knowledge bubbles up through the sector because I'm, I genuinely think it's not trickling down mm. and some of the most ambitious and innovative stuff that I've done is with small charities when you can take money off the table and just say I don't know if this is going to work should we give it a try and they're like yeah okay but all of a sudden when it's like this is going to cost 10 grand and all, all other things come to play so a lot of the stuff that I do with small stuff powers my thinking for medium and large charities rather than being the other way around and it's it's all based on those things that I felt when I was young, you know, that experience of, you know, being powerless, um, that idea of sort of centre and lived experience and that idea of making things a bit fairer. Because just to wrap up, like, I think whatever the problem is, you know, making making sure that the right people are in the room is where the answer is you know and being more democratic about decision making and less about boardroom logic you know like I remember my final comment here as as a young chap a, a young agency blade in an executive role watching all of the directors going into a creative brainstorm and they're you know all 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 white all all men all upper middle class and send someone, what are, they, what are they talking about? It's like, oh, they're, they're, they're brainstorming in a, in a creative session to see what it would feel like to be homeless. And I just sort of reflected on my journey and I was just thinking, why don't you just get the right fucking people in the room? Do you know what I mean? And then all of this will click into place. So that's kind of what I do. Where do we take that, Kenneth? I I was going to say, I think we've never had a guest that answered every single one of their questions (laughs) from the first question. (laughs) (laughs) Any other business? No, exactly. He's done too many of these podcasts before. He's experienced in this field. Yeah, very good. Well, you you talked about some real seminal moments in your life and your your career. You talked a little bit about going from face-to-face and and telephone to joining that IG role and then that IG role onto director roles and then to agency. For anyone that's listening, how did it feel? Like, how did you negotiate that and make that happen? Did it just feel like it, it was the move that you had to make and you didn't have to just resign upstairs and then come downstairs and tell your family members that you had done that? Um, so maybe earlier in your career. And how do people do that? How, if someone's listening to this thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to get into that IG team or I want to move the other way. Or how did you negotiate that? How did you make that happen? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when like it's it's so easy to retrofit all of this stuff and go, yes, and yes. the golden thread that connects every job that I've ever had is yes. power. And, and, but that's not the truth, you know. We stumble. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't really know anyone who's got a grand plan or or a grand plan that they they stick to. And it's more about those moves at the time. Yeah. So you thought I want to yeah. be there. That's where I want to be. And presumably that's terrifying and you then get the role that you've been desperate for and suddenly that oh, shit oh god I've actually got this how do I do this I've not done this side of it before it's not what it either is what I expected it to be or it's not or it's a mix of the two it can be terrifying yeah. to actually make that leap it really is and I think if, if reflecting back from kind of what I do what I do for a living at my happy place as a as an elderly gentleman now you know my my happy place work-wise is being confronted with a problem that I've never seen before with a group of people who I know can can uh, can make the right decisions and come up with the right solutions but at that present moment we have the clue what to do you know and that that but that's developed over over time if I see briefs come through where it's like well the answer is xyz I'll just tell people that rather than yeah. charging for it but I think the genesis of that is maybe and maybe this comes from a place of, of, of privilege and I need to check myself, but every job that I've ever had, I never really thought I could do it. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you get the job and then you kind of learn how to do it. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that's a particularly good trait, but being comfortable with... Some people just hide that well. Yeah, yeah, Surely, yeah, yeah. right? Everybody's... Yeah, maybe. For the first 
little while you're just trying to work out what it is that you're meant to do yeah, yeah. and and you know like most of the jobs that I went for I didn't get you know I thought I was going to be stuck in not stuck but I thought my career may have to develop within direct dialogue because no one would take a pun on me mm. absolutely no one that took a long time and then likewise to to make the leap from a discipline to a director you, you know where you're managing multidisciplinary stuff like that's that's a leap and the, the only way that I could do that was to leap to a fundraising director's role where the majority of the role is individual giving do you know what I mean so yeah. you have to be a bit canny about that as well but I don't know well, that, that bit that you talked about how you, your, your happy place similar that kind of fit with the second point that I furiously scribbled down around um, that two weeks in uh, refugee action where Stephen suddenly was in charge of an organization that had lost 24 of its 27 million pounds worth of income those figures might be slightly wrong but it's ballpark it's let's around go with that. that sounds dramatic let's go with that um yeah. for you that's perfect that feels like that fit brilliantly that, that, that then somebody came to the fore and said yes let's do this here we go this actually frees us the shackles are off I can imagine you in the back of the room just with your fists in the air. Yes, <laughs> ripping the shirt off. Let's go. Yeah. Come on, let's do it. I think, I think fundamentally what I experienced with that decision, because it had happened slightly before I arrived. So on the day that I arrived, the chief exec and the senior management team were taking chairs out of the office because they didn't need them anymore because the organisation had shrunk that much. So my first morning at Refugee Action was shifting furniture, which... You know, when you understand what that furniture was there for before, it throws into sharp relief what's happening to the organisation. And, you know, there, were, there was a certain amount of trauma attached with that. But I think coming in new and Stephen coming in new and the head of uh, Angelique Orr, who's head of campaigns, best campaigner I've, I've ever worked with, coming in as well, we did see it as an opportunity you know, and to have it phrased by the CEO in such a way as well, like, you know, this it isn't about money, it isn't about growth for growth's sake, you know, now we can really refine our strategy, and his approach to strategy was just in incredible, it was all about simplicity, it was all about um, strategy needs to be understood by every member of the organisation at every level, you know, and it needs to, it needs to be a conversation that everyone's comfortable having and I think that's really the genesis of my approach to strategy going forward if you can't yeah and, and for everyone to understand it everyone needs to be involved in it that's the the added bit that I sort of brought to my work it's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at do more good pod or if you're a professional business person you can find us on LinkedIn too there's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. It's coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. It's really interesting hearing you talk, Wayne, about your, your career and, and thank you for sharing that because I know it's, you know, going all the way back and talking about your, your childhood, I think, yeah, we appreciate you sharing that. But it's that it, what what comes out of, of when you were talking was that growth doesn't come out of comfort zones, right? Like you have to be in uncomfortable situations to grow. And even in your early career, you know, taking some of them leaps of faith, even when you talked about your your school life and, and, and you know, kind of leaving home. And I'm sure that was very uncomfortable and, and feeling that. But <clears throat> you grew as a human, I'm sure, during those periods and learned a lot. And then just hearing you talk about the time when, you, you're most excited when you're in a room with a group of people without a clear direction, without with a challenge, but with no answers. And that's what excites you. And I'm just really thinking about that to probably 95, actually, including James and I, 99% of the people listening to this podcast will sound hyper scary. You know, that that is probably the worst nightmare in a lot of situations. How do you think you've got comfortable in that being so much in the unknown particularly around your your day-to-day -day work today for example yeah I don't it's it's tricky isn't it I think this isn't a diss to anyone at all this is just looking back historically on how fundraising has has worked and I think if you look at if you look at large agencies in general or or, or large charity we, we can have them side by side large charities large agencies 
you know, they, these organizations, as well as their mission and their values, they are, they are fueled by a massive wages bill. Do you know what I mean? So that like that is very, very apparent from both a charity and an agency angle. The only difference from the charity angle is that that support is money that paying pay those wages for agencies and charity, charity money. And I, I think from an agency perspective, if you look at that, then like once something innovative has been done, that can then be productized across the sector to enable money to keep flowing through and to keep you know agencies um, stable, which they have to be. So I think that that kind of philosophy, not that it exists now, and I'm not pointing fingers at any agencies, but certainly historically, that has very much been the case. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's like we've we've got this regular giving product here. It worked for this charity. We'll transfer it to this charity. You know, we've got this experiential event that worked for this charity. We'll do it for another charity. And it doesn't come from a bad place. It comes from a, a fact that it would be incredibly risky for organisations of that size to kind of come up with new things that may or may not work all of the time when they've got 100 people or 50 people that they need to financially support who get on. And the same with charities. It's yes. like, you know, we could be like, we could throw money at this, we could throw money at that, do you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, this thing we know will kind of work. You know, it might have a short shelf life or, you know, we might need to change things up or whatever, but fundamentally it works. And I think that limits innovation and it limits a lot of good ideas but it's completely understandable why that happens whereas you know you you look at like consultants small nimble agencies um smaller charities that don't have many other options it's a different headspace do you know what i mean you can do different things you can try on different things and when i'm saying about this the free stuff that i do you know that's not that's not me being philanthropic. That's for my learning and development. Yeah. And to be able to say, you know, this is a problem that I've never experienced before. Here's a group of people who can solve it. Don't know what the answer is, but I'm not going to charge you, but we'll work, we'll work it through. People suddenly like, cool, yeah, all right, let's try that. You know, and what you learn from that can can go into other things. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah i think it, <laughs> no i think i think it does i think i think you're right i think what you're talking about is th there's guardrails in, in in agencies and in big charities isn't there you can't you don't have you, you might go into an innovation session and say we're going to come up to something but there's still very clear boundaries in terms of the profitability and as you say paying the wages that we've got to do every month and that's the same in big charities and a lot of charities and to remove them guardrails entirely and have the room and space to creatively innovate is is probably quite a rare thing so i can imagine as you say for you personally and because one of the questions was what you know giving that time to small charities what do you get out of it you know personally and professionally i can i can imagine it's a great learning and development yeah. thing for you because you're going into places that probably some of the ceos of top charities would love to be able to go into and and really kind of explore and come up with solutions for Maybe, yeah. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, all the solutions are different, right? Do you know what I mean? And that's that that's terrifying on 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 one hand, but also, you know, it it shows that you know it's why it's why my organisation is called Humanity Squared. You know, when you pull together people, get the right people together. If you ask the right questions, you will get the right answers. Some of them will be scary. Some of them might not be achievable for a long time, but you will fundamentally get there rather than, you know, clicking your fingers in a boardroom and trying to come up with something smart on PowerPoint that no one understands. You know? And I imagine the payoff on that also is, is, is massively increased as well. When you come up with something bespoke or something, you know, not an off-the-shelf product that you've perhaps taken from an agency, you've taken it from somebody else, that actually it does feel more authentic. It feels better. And then that will transfer to supporters as well. They can feel that. They can see that you've put in the hard yards and actually this yeah. does fit with them. And perhaps they've been involved in the in the creation as well for some of them, if you're getting those right people in the room. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's more about mindset and methodology. Do you know what I mean? And like, like I worked with a child bereavement charity recently, um, and the, the, the whole brief, unless I imagined it or have retrofitted it, the original brief was that 
all of their work uh, is very intense one-to-one -one support um, with um, children and, and young people, you know, therapy, counselling, all of that stuff that young people need who have been bereaved. Then at the start of lockdown, none of their physical services could, could happen. Like many organisations, they took the leap into some sort of digital provision, started to see that it was working. So all the myths about it being only working face-to-face -face were starting to be dispelled. And then the brief as it came to me was, um, we need an app. We need, you know, we need an app that young people can log on to to help access services and whatever. You know, you, you know about digital Wayne, which I don't. Um, you know, kind of where do we go to build this app? And it's like, okay, let's take a take a step back. Let's keep asking why until we get to the truth. Let's bring children and young people into the equation and speak to them. I remember vividly first workshop that we had with young people first of all those workshops have to be at really unsociable hours for older people like me so <laughs> I didn't sign up to that but workshops at nine o'clock at night um but you know we posed this idea of an app and like a 15 year old young person turned around to me and, and everyone else there and was like yeah bruv I really want an app on my phone to show that my dad has died right so what, what do we need then so after you know rounds of workshops it's like what, what the young people wanted was info in a way that actually relates to them. You know, and it, you look at the website and it's grown-ups talking to other grown-ups about what children and young people need. You know, the, the children and young people wanted to be able to self-refer to, you know, to, to the service rather than being, you know, signposted by an adult and rather than services shutting at six o'clock in the evening because that's when grown-ups like to go home and have their dinner. Yeah, and and finally, what they wanted was kind of peer support to be able to, you know, connect with other children who are going through the same thing as those. Not to talk predominantly about grief, but to talk about Minecraft and to talk about FIFA or whatever it is that they're interested in to engage as human beings. So, all of a sudden, the output of that project was that, you know, we we start to build all of the stuff that they needed. But now, children and young people are helping to shape service design and children and young people are helping with the branding and you know what digital transformation looks like and it makes it poses a lot of really hard questions but it answers some really hard ones too like what should our tone of voice be well all of a sudden the our tone of voice is the raw undiluted voice of the people that we represent it's like wow yeah it's so simple you know and we never built an app <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, why, why do you, why do so many, and just in your experience and, and using that point, why do you think so many organisations get that wrong and, and, and dictate and, and hierarchy dominates what they will do and we all make this decision because this is what we believe people want? Why is that approach that you're taking not as widespread as maybe it should be? I... I don't, first of all, the caveat is I think lots, loads of really cool people are, are doing this and the tide is, is is shifting. But what we're dealing with here is quite quite tectonic. You know, it's not just charities. It's the way society is structured, really, isn't it? It's the way, you know, large organisations are, are structured. And it's it's interesting. I, I, don't, I make it I make it a part of my business to speak to like people who are way cleverer than me and I've been speaking to people who specialize in growth and expansion from small startups and kind of how that how they do it and I'm, I made a really flippant comment about wow you, you've got loads of money do you know what I mean it's all about all about this and you know I talked about the return on investment from charities and they were like have you any idea what we would give for a return on investment like that you know that the, what they're dealing with with a lot of you know tech startups is really tight and they have to be really agile and they have to start with you know what the actual need is and they have to start with human-centered design rather than this is my pet project and how do I sell it you know so so the, there's that but also you know once you start unpicking hierarchy for example which is basically culture as well you're you're unpicking 150 years of how how we've worked and and how humans have interacted in the workplace and it takes really big things to change that and I think the start of lockdown did really change that 
you know, then all of a sudden the entire nation worked remotely for a bit. And then, you know, by, by, by need, hierarchies changed, you know, and people had to mobilize in, in different ways. And it's, it's really interesting that there is a bit of a, that changed things, but then things started to shift back a bit. And I don't know if you're noticing this as well, you know, that there's a tide that pulls you back to familiarity and you've got to really row against it constantly. And a lot of the work that I'm doing now is not just about focusing on what transformation could look like, but also realizing that we're constantly going to be slipping back like this. And what, what, what do you do after I've gone? You know, thanks very much. Like what happens, what happens then? And yeah. Claire Warner, my work wife, she's, you know, she's setting up a new program now, which is, it's really interesting because in terms of well-being, she's like projected into organizations when things are not going well. But mm. like, how about a product when, when, when before things go wrong? Yeah, let's, yeah. let's focus on things then. And I think that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, it's a good point about you not being in the, when you leave, you know, the man that loves the danger element leaves the room. People will, like Kenneth and I, we, we, we feel much safer in a more structured environment. So we would slip, slip back into that. Yeah, it's very easy to do, isn't it? There was a point that you talked about before about appreciating your own value. So when you came downstairs or your, your wife's chat with you beforehand about, you know what they're charging you out at? Why, you, you know, that's your value and not what you're being paid that's a kind of a revelationary moment some people seem to have an overinflated version of their own value but quite often people are under that aren't they that they don't really appreciate what they bring to a room or to an organization or what they can do that must, that's quite nice to have somebody telling you that from as in your wife saying that to you how did that feel to actually go off and do it by yourself and, and find I don't know you'll live up to that value I suppose is it, you're putting pressure on yourself to do that yeah i found that really terrifying and i think just in terms of you know not hammering the point of my upbringing too much but when you've when you've lived your life with no safety net do you know what i mean like every decision you make about work is really really important you know there's not that kind of oh well if it all goes wrong i can move back in with mum and dad for six months or whatever you know the sort of things are I've lived a, a lot of my life without that safety net in place, which has historically not hindered me from taking uh, or applying for the jobs that I want. But like every, all of my friends are consultants or, or run their own businesses. Do you know what I mean? And you know, even when I was a, a pure, you know, my my best mates were they they came up the same time as I did, and then they ran their own big agency. They they had that belief and that entrepreneurial spirit to be able to do that. And I never I never had that. You know, the thought of consultancy life at the start of it was absolutely terrifying for me. And even now, I always you know even though I'm, I'm doing all right you know for now, but I still think I'm three months away from bankruptcy all of the time. I think a lot of consultants feel that. But my drive to actually set up on my own was driven by two things one was that the change I, I wanted to see happen weirdly was starting to happen from from covid so the phone started ringing all these conversations that i'd had with charities a year ago about doing things differently and whatever they were suddenly getting back to me and going this might be the only game in town now can we, <laughs> we try that again but also the agency that i work for um got bought by a, a larger agency so it's just one of when I when I go in, I go I go I go full in. So there was a there was a crossroads there of like, do I commit three or four years to the next bit of development for this agency, or or do I do it now? And those two things intersected. Everything was wild in in lockdown. I still really don't understand how I had the courage to do it, but I'm glad that I did. Yeah. How do you not Wayne going in going in and seeing these opportunities and 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 thinking from from what you've spoken about understanding kind of your passion and energy for it you must come out of some of these opportunities or work contracts and think oh i'd love to see that through to fruition does that does that ever tempt you back into a full-time or a longer-term project or commitment yeah all the time you know i always i still think that humanic squared is a sort of side hustle that you know will, will be fun until I run it into the ground and then hop back charity side but it is yeah it's really hard 
weirdly when i was at refugee action that was that was a maternity cover post it got extended for a, a bit afterwards and you know they, they would have been very happy to to keep me on but that's the first kind of fixed term bit of work that i ever did and as it got towards what i thought was going to be the end of the maternity cover it's like I want to leave when it's on my terms, not when it's on, it, it's really hard. And I find that with consultancy work as well. There is part of me is that the de the detail I, I find quite difficult, you know, and there are other people who are really good at that. So there's a natural point for me to leave most of the projects, but there's still a residual thing of like, oh, I really, yeah, I want to, I want to stay on for another year and see this through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Wayne, we're conscious of your time and we, we could sit here and talk all night. There was a load of different things that we could have explored and maybe we need to do this again. But I did want to give you an opportunity to delve into a slightly different area. Um, you know, there's, 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 there was loads of stuff I was going to ask you around strategy, but as I say, we'll come back to it. Charity Island Discs is what, <laughs> what the people are here for. Tell us about Charity <laughs> Island Charity Island Discs and, and and the great idea, where it came from, how many episodes you've done and when is it back? Oh, the love. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, first of all, like enormous props to fundraising everywhere for entertaining the idea and particularly Simon Scriber, who did a lot of legwork at the start. But basically what happened is I think it was lockdown. Yeah, it must have been at the start of lockdown. I put a tweet out just as I do and, and just said, yeah, wouldn't Charity Island Disc be a really brilliant idea? Someone, someone should run with that. And Simon Scriber from Fundraising Everywhere um, messaged me back and said, if you, if you want to do this, we'll support this through, through our platform. And I was like, dude, if you can make this happen, go with it. And it shows a lot about the values of fundraising everywhere of, of whom I am a huge advocate that they said we don't want to do it we want to support you to do it so come on and you know we didn't know how we were going to do it as well because there's so much copyright issue around it but then Simon did all of the legwork worked out that if you do it through YouTube the copyright's covered um, so that's why it became on not a podcast and, and through there I started to think about guests. I, I started to think about what the principles behind it were, and the principles very much that you know I'm I'm, I'm sick of the LinkedIn profiles, but I'm fascinated by people, and I just want to get behind the LinkedIn profiles and connect connect to people's humanity. And what better way to do that than through music? And yeah, it, 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 this was at the start of setting up my own company as well, so it always got bounced back to you know second position but feedback has been really great you know it, it, it's attracted a, a lot of people we've had some amazing people on there you know some great topics have been covered um and yeah you know I'd be keen to 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 bring it back we just need to factor it into workloads and and stuff like that yeah. have you listened to him yeah, I remember the David Lacey one stands out for for, for me because I guess I, I'd seen him on, you know, in a, it's like you say, it's like getting to know someone and and you see everything kind of public profile. You someone sometimes see someone's Twitter profile and what they're posting on there, but just kind of getting to know the real people and their motivations and where it came from. I thought it was a really really great concept. So yeah, I think you'll have to get you'll have to get James on, although his music selection isn't. I was going to say, what's your what's your what's your opening song choice, Kenneth? What would you go with? <laughs> Ooh. You'd go with like a karaoke when you'd be singing along, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, Gloria Gaynor, I will survive. <laughs> Come on, you're in. You're in. <laughs> you can do that a few times. Yeah. 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 So Wayne, look, we'll start starting to wrap it up. Like as you as you carry on, on this journey now that you're on, obviously you, you've talked a few times down to yourself in terms of you're an old man, but you know, you're a spring chicken in this this consultancy realm. You've got lots of years ahead of you, you've got lots to give. Um, through your approach what what do you hope for in the future have you got do you set yourself any kind of goals or ambitions or is there anything kind of coming up that you're like this is where I'm this is where I'm heading uh that's a good question um I, don't, I think the big focus for me I, I do work six days a week so there's and you know there's something about work-life balance going on there and then I suppose that if things continue to go well which is a conversation that I'm having with a lot of my consultant friends at the moment is like, 
if, if there is only a finite amount of hours in the week, like what happens next? Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Is it is it a case of employing more people? Is it a case of just focusing on? So it's, it's those sort of discussions. And one of the great things about being a consultant now, it's probably the first time in 25 years that I haven't managed anyone. And I'm really enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> just for the, for the now. So, you know, the, those those sort of questions. But, yeah. yeah. Humanity wanna, cubed. Yeah. Stick to my two-point business plan. That's what I want to do. I want to do the best work that I can and I don't want to work with ourselves. Look, Wayne, we're not going to let you go without a couple of quick fire questions. Uh, we'll go with the first one. If you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? What would I say? I... I'd say a couple of things. I'd say one that that acne will clear up because <laughs> <laughs> that was I still had it when I was twenty. And two, I suppose the things about yourself that you're trying to hide now will eventually be the things that drive you forward. That's a bit nice. cheesy, but yeah. yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Question number two for you: Can Go you on. tell us about one life hack, a productivity tool? A skill that you have taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? I've got two and they're both about dishwashers. Can I use those? Right. Absolutely. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Love dishwashers. Yeah. Well, I've got recently the first, first time owner of one, so I'm obsessed with it. It's a lovely thing. Yeah. I've, I've made it. You know, this is a good life. I've got a dishwasher. <laughs> uh, but one is the cooking process for dinner actually starts. With the emptying of the dishwasher i think if you factor that in yeah it's chaotic otherwise isn't it if you've got a full dishwasher and you're created so that that's that's one like that um and yeah the, the other one about dishwashers is that you will get more brilliant ideas emptying the dishwasher <laughs> than you will get staring at a blank google doc <laughs> I, think, I think there's a podcast there or a YouTube series like interviews <laughs> over emptying the dishwasher. Right now, Simon Scrivener is writing, scribbling seriously. He's trademarked that already, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he's done it. He's about that one. Yeah. That's a good one. All right, uh, Wayne. And the last question: There's a podcast that is focused around people doing more good. What's your favourite story or inspiring individual you've met on your journey recently who has done something good for others? If you want, very recently, I, and I don't want this to sound flippant at all, but have you watched that George Michael documentary that's been on this week? Two no, parts of Channel 4. I seen it. I've seen it advertised, I think. I yeah, watched a bit of the first, first episode. I haven't watched much of it yet, though. About George Michael being outed and, you, you know, everyone knows the, the story and how, yeah. he, how he bounced back and, you know, really owned his identity and whatever... And I, I watched both parts of that this week and just thought, what a fucking legend. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know his hand, sorry, um, I know his hand was forced by the media and all of that sort of stuff. But to come out fighting, not just for himself, but for the community and how he did that right up until his tragic end, hats off to George Michael. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah you you haven't sport the ending because I was kind of aware of that, but I think I'm up to I'm up to the point where he's just about to. I think where, where did I get up to? Yeah, just just the piece where he get he got caught in the US, and so I need to need to conclude it. But yeah, I didn't know that story. Of course, like slightly different era for me. That kind of backstory yeah. to George Michael wasn't necessarily uh, that aware of. But yeah, we'll give that one to George Michael. Inspiring, did something good for others. James. Brilliant to speak to Wayne. Any final thoughts before we let him go? Oh, God, I love it when somebody tells a story at the very beginning that you can then reference at the end. Like that's <laughs> just a nice loop. But when you talk about Brian Cox and that picture of a seven-year-old that you should be carrying around in your wallet at all times, and then you went on, like you talk about your your amazing story of your childhood. That thank you again for sharing that and your daredevil parents eloping and, and the experiences that that happened after that and and that you lived through. It just like all of that clearly you know this but that forms your empathy for others and what you've gone on to do with your life and that's wonderful to hear about how you've turned those experiences into into supporting other people and helping them and getting those experts in the room of which of course you are one it has been just like a, a pleasure to see behind the LinkedIn profile of yourself thank you so much 
Oh, chaps, you guys are really lovely. And th- thank you. I, I was really nervous about that. I don't normally breeze through podcasts, but you could probably hear the wobbliness in my voice because that's the first time I've really done that. But yeah, appreciate it. And, you know, hopefully people will hear that and realise that it's okay to be a bit different. Take that one. Wayne, have a lovely rest of your evening. We'll wrap it up there. James, we'll catch up soon. We've got some good guests coming up. And yeah, I've really enjoyed getting back on the uh, Do More Good train this evening. So let's keep let's keep this train a rolling. That's fine. Good to Cheers, see you. James. Cheers, Cheers guys. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? We would very much appreciate if you can leave us a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast platform. You can also find out more about us on our website at domoregood.uk. And if you'd like to get in touch with either James or myself, you can contact us at contact at domoregood.uk. Let us know how we can improve the show, whether you have a recommendation for a guest or whether you'd like to feature yourself. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good. 